This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Liquid Amber Tattoo and Art Collective. Liquid Amber provides custom and cosmetic tattoos alongside a curated art gallery dedicated to celebrating local artists. And their monthly art socials are becoming a can't-miss event in the Vancouver cultural scene. Discover more at liquidambertattoo.com. And stay tuned to learn more about Liquid Amber's call for submissions for a film industry art showcase coming in 2020. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Ferminger. My mission is to pull back the curtain on Vancouver's film and television industry and expose its beating heart, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom style, by getting deep and down and a little dirty with the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. Today, we welcome Simon Davis Barry. Can I use your three names? You can. Yeah, okay. Because yes. I think that's your Twitter handle or something. <laughs> Simon Davis Barry to the YVR screen scene hot seat. Simon doesn't know this yet, but he's my nemesis because he's responsible for many, many episodes of television that have kept me up at night. Simon is, is an award winning writer director, producer, and showrunner whose greatest hits include Continuum, that Vancouver shot and set time travel crime procedural, the post-apocalyptic vampire series Van Helsing, no sparkly vampires in that show, the intern scary and bonkers and completely underrated Ghost Wars, and Bad Blood, a searing crime drama based on the notorious Rizzuto crime family of Montreal. He's also the showrunner of Warrior Nun, a show that has yet to premiere, but that will probably keep me up at night, too. So today we're going to find out what is going on in Simon's brain to birth all of this material. We're going to find out exactly what it is that a showrunner does. And we're going to beg him for a few details about Warrior Nun. So Simon davis Barry, welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Thank you. It's, it makes me feel like uh, with my three-name name, it's like I can be the avatar for Simon Barry, the other guy. <laughs> Simon, ba- Simon Davis Barry is like someone else who works, and then Simon Barry is just the normal guy who yeah, has a normal life. So which one is in the studio with us Simon today? Barry is in the studio for sure because I'm moving right now, and I feel very grounded. Okay. I'm packing boxes and, uh, and doing very normal you know, life, uh, traditional life things, nothing glamorous no travel yeah because you've been on the road a lot this year i've been away uh six months in spain filming and then before that i was in la for four or five months wow so it's been a crazy year i can imagine go running through that list of almost like unrelated completely bonkers shows you know that are also vastly different like continuum van helsing ghost wars and then bad blood you know and like that um like I, I think a lot about what must be going on in in your brain, you know, and like so, like what is if if you're packing up your house, <laughs> like what, what is going into a box? Like, are you surrounded by random things too? Yeah. Just the way that your shows are themselves very random. Well, there's lots of books because every show usually has like a lot of reading associated with it, especially a show like Bad Blood, which was based on real events. Yeah. Um, but then it's yeah, it's a lot of knickknacks. A lot, I mean, influence and inspiration comes from everywhere. Video games, movies, 
other shows, articles, magazines. So if you were to look through the moving box, you'd see a lot of magazines. Yeah. Uh, a lot of books. What, uh, sorry, what kind of magazines? We're we talking like The Economist. We're we talking like Fangoria. A little bit of everything, like yeah. Economist, uh, Vanity Fair, Wired, Popular yeah. Science, The Atlantic, um, the Writers Guild magazine. Yeah. Uh, a little bit of a hodgepodge of because it's you always end up looking in. Um, you know, every show ha has multiple components, and there's the high concept plot component, but there's also the human component. And yeah. the human component comes, the inspiration for that can come from anywhere. Yeah. And so you're sort of always consuming stories, even if they have nothing to do with what I'm writing. The uh, the truth about sort of the human condition can filter in from any uh, direction. What is your favorite place to find those ideas? I love it the best when I'm not expecting it yeah. uh, because the, the expectation is, oh, I have to like sit down and think and figure it out. And then sometimes I'm just sitting in my car in traffic and two, an A and a B come together and suddenly there's a germ of an idea. Or it's just you have lunch. I mean, this happened the other day with uh, Alex Ponovic. Oh, yeah. Well, there are always lots of ideas floating out of Alex. Well, I get a lot. I mean, a lot of people like <laughs> tell me stories a lot, but very few of them turn out to be inspirations for a show. Yeah. And Alex was telling me a story, and I was like, oh, my God, this is – if I tweak this, this could be an interesting idea for a show. So then th that wasn't something you expect, going to lunch with Alex. Yeah. You know, normally you go to lunch with Alex, and Alex just talks about Alex Ponovic. <laughs> <laughs> how great he is and how awesome his life is. Yeah, and, and all the and, jars he's able to open with such ease. Yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> how great his view is and all that stuff. But no, this, I'm kidding, of course. I know. You're a fan. We're fans of him here. He was good, our very first guest I'm here on the podcast. And yes. uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to one day um, building a show around him. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah, it would have to be a big show. Cause yeah, it's definitely He's XL. a big man. Yeah, XL Yeah. Show. I, I want to know what kind of a kid you were. Nerd. Yeah. Full on Lego. <laughs> you surprised Star me, sir. Wars. Um, <laughs> no, I was a full on nerd. Uh, I loved to. I mean, I really was into movies as a kid and computers and video games. So, I please name drop the like the first computer you ever had. Well, and my my dad was in the business, so we had an Apple II uh, in like 1976 or what? 77. Like wow. we had one of the first. I think we had the first computer, home computer of of anyone that I knew. Wow. So kids would come to our house to see what this newfangled technology was. And what did it take up, like half a room no, or something? No, it's an Apple II. <laughs> it's like, it's actually still in the, the, I would say, you know, the future of computers was like like the size of a typewriter. Wow. Um, electric typewriter. And did that, and what impact do you think interacting with that kind of technology at that age have on you? Well, a lot of things I did when I was young, I didn't realize then were storytelling and writing, but yeah. I had sort of transplanted them into other forms. So for example, a lot of stuff I would do as a kid would, I would program like basic uh, text adventure games yeah. for my friends. So I would basically program like a text adventure and then have friends would come over and play it. And that really? for me was essentially, I was never thinking of myself as a writer, Yeah. but I was technically writing. I just didn't think of it as writing. I thought of it as, as game playing. Yeah. And then other friends of ours would do like, we would make these recordings, like stories, radio play, dramas, which again, you sort of got excited about the performance and the play of it all, not the coming up with the idea. Yeah. But again, that was writing. And then I used to do 
uh, I would draw comics, and that was writing, but I wasn't thinking of it as writing. I was thinking of it as drawing. And uh, <laughs> okay, and, when and did my you? My friends and I started making films, like <laughs> yeah. Super Eight films. Greg Middleton, actually, and I, when we were in our uh, early uh, Greg Middleton, yeah, from Greg and I, Game of Thrones, from Game of Thrones. That's when right. When we were like twelve, thirteen, we would like do these uh, stop motion films with where we would have like Lego characters, yeah, and then suddenly they would get blown up. And of we course. would use firecrackers, and you know. <laughs> but do you didn't call yourself a writer then? No. We so when writing. did you call yourself a writer? It's so strange. I think all this time I was in denial of being a writer and just finding other outlets to write besides sitting down and putting pen to paper, which to me felt like homework. Mm. And in those days, I mean, I was a terrible student, and I hated homework. It was like the my my kryptonite. And I was always late with assignments, doing things at the last minute. And the irony is now I have homework for the rest of my life. Like being <laughs> yeah. a writer and a working writer means you have homework every night. Yeah, it's, it's deadlines. And the one thing it's... I hated the most in life as a kid was homework, and now I have it all the time. So yeah. there's a sick, sick irony there. But, you know, I think eventually I figured out that my filmmaking, the desire to make short films, the desire to tell stories was was writing and I should probably just sit down and write. Yeah. And so I started writing, but very late, like not into my 20s. So then when you were, you know, a, a little, you were you were in Montreal, right? Yeah. Yes. Greg and I were in Montreal. Yeah. So when you were at Cégep. Yeah. Uh, what 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 did you articulate that you wanted to be when you grew up? To filmmaker, a film director. So it was, always film. Yeah, filmmaker. always. It was like, no, we're going to be, uh, we're going to be, um, you know, the equivalent of the day, I guess, was Tarantino or um, you know, the Scorsese movies were hot and Spielberg was king. And it was the, it was the days of uh, where uh, the idea of being a filmmaker kind of caught your imagination, which I think generationally was something hard to grasp up yeah. to that period in time, which was like the late 70s, early 80s. I mean, I graduated in high school in the mid-'80s, so it was seemed realistic. I mean, I couldn't get into NYU or USC or all the fancy film schools. Yeah. But in CJEP, at least, we got to play yeah. and do stuff. CJEP, for our, our listeners, is kind of like after after high school, yeah. before, before university. university. And that's where I met Stephen Hedges. So Steve Hedges and I and Greg and John Walker were all in CJEP together in Montreal. Shut the front door. At John really? At College, yeah. And that's why Steve, Greg, and I huh. all came to UBC together. Uh, to do the film program because okay, we're all I'm, in CJ. I mean, we've spoken before. I had no idea. Yeah. Like, so your origin story is really wrapped up in theirs. Well, I have to have a multi-episode arc well, featuring and I, all Greg these guys. Greg and I guys. were sh- movie theater <laughs> ushers in Montreal. Really? Yeah. Yeah? yeah, I mean, isn't that like so? My husband Paul, he like he went to film school, UBC Film, and he had like two of his dream jobs when he was he was like at film school and he was working in the movie theater and he worked at Rogers Video and yeah. it was just like that was like the life. He just wanted to learn to make movies and then watch movies. Yeah, like, I was lucky was... while I was in school at UBC, I got hired. I started working on sets as an yeah. assistant cameraman, so I was doing kind of that same thing where I was studying and living. The life I definitely was choosing. Now, when you were, because I know a lot of people go to film school and then they come out and they pursue different paths. You know, go to film school, want to be a filmmaker, come out, I'm going to be an editor. Mm-hmm. I'm going to yeah. be a DP. When you were going through film school then, like, were you holding tight to that idea that I'm going to be a director, I'm going to be a, a showrunner? Or like, what was your, what yeah. was your goal? I wasn't thinking of showrunning as much because, again, you're a movie I was guy. Trying to avoid writing, <laughs> and showrunning definitely involves a lot of writing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was thinking more in terms of 
uh, visual. I, I shot a couple of films as a DP in school, and I AD'd and produced and directed and wrote. But writing even then was just a means to an end. It was like, well, I have to write something because I want to direct something. Yeah. So directing was definitely the driving um, uh, impetus for all the other things. But yeah. I didn't really waver in sort of what I thought I would be doing coming out of film school. I sort of kept the trajectory of making short films, positioning myself as a director, which ultimately when I moved to LA was what got me into writing. Yeah. Because I didn't have a clue about how things worked in LA. So I got there and I was an idiot. And But do you and, think that worked to your advantage? Absolutely. Yeah. I, had, I completely <laughs> misread the, sh the actual odds. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm the idiot that went to, moves to LA and doesn't write a script before they get there. Uh -huh. I didn't write it till after I got there, which is really stupid when you think about it, uh, to show up there and not have a script under your arm. But I didn't really understand that. I thought I could go to LA and I had directed some short films. I thought, oh, I'll just have a screening and people will come and uh, they'll see that I can do that and then they'll just offer me a job. Mm -hmm. So I called up all the people I had worked with on sets in Vancouver over the years from LA and I had a friend who had access to a screening room at Universal Studios and I said, okay, I'm gonna have the screening of this short film and I'd shot it in 35 and it was super expensive and you know really well produced, I thought, and I thought, I'll just have a screening and everyone will come that I've worked with in all these movies and they'll see what a genius I am and I'll just get hired to direct yeah. a film or something. So I organized the screening, uh, I show up, uh -huh. and nobody has shown, no one's shown up from anyone Anyone I've invited from my from the previous uh, movies I'd worked on oh. as, a, as a cameraman uh, assistant. So I was like, oh my god! But luckily enough, a few friends of mine in LA had come, and one woman had brought her uh, the girl, the guy she was dating at the time, and he watched it, and he was like at the end of the screening, and I was just bummed out because there was literally an empty yeah. Empty with five There's going to be there. no job offers no. at the end. And yeah. I was like, oh, no parade. He said, hey, that was pretty good. Uh, where, can I read your script? And I was like, huh? Because I was an idiot. <laughs> he said, you're, like, you must have a script because that's the currency of this business. I mean, you can't be a director if you don't have a script, uh, either that you wrote or that someone else wrote that you want to direct. And I was like, uh, no, actually, I don't. He goes, well, you, you need to write. He was a really smart guy. And he said, well, you need to go and write a script, like now. And, and when it's finished, you know, let me know. And I said, okay, well, what should I write? <laughs> oh, God. And he said, um, he said, write a big Hollywood movie. Like, write something a movie star would want to be in and a big director would want to direct. And I was like, okay. So I literally, like, you know, like a robot, I turned, went home to the apartment I was in and didn't leave for three months, basically sat down and wrote a screenplay. Yeah. Uh, to, to order. And then, uh, but I'm glad I did, and I'm glad that happened because I sort of learned a lot about the craft in, in you know, in real time, and I was motivated because I had, you know, this ticking clock where I had to leave L.A. if I didn't get a job. Yeah. Uh, because you're only allowed to stay, you know, less than six months if you don't have, you know, employment and get a job. And I couldn't get a job as a Canadian, so I wrote a script, which then luckily got me an agent, which I then sold, okay. which then the same guy got me hooked up with a, a deal at Warner Brothers, which was my first job. And then I wrote Deep Blue Sea, which was um, my first, you know, I didn't get a credit on it, but it was my first uh, hired gig for uh, Warner Brothers. And then that got me my visa and credibility. And then I could sort of navigate the town. 
Well, at least you could deliver though, right? Like when you got back to your apartment and you wrote for three months, like you yeah. wrote something that... I deadlined myself into, it was a fear-based uh, uh, creative process, I guess yeah. you could say. <laughs> but it was fun. I mean, I did, I really enjoyed it. And I I really felt like I had to be serious about what I, why was I there? What was I doing? Yeah. Um, and I had to be a very kind of, um, I had to grow up a little. I hadn't, yeah. I hadn't fully grown up, I think, at that point. I was in my mid-20s. Have you grown up by now? No, I just go, I'm reversing. <laughs> I've decided that growing up doesn't really work, so I have to go backwards now. Because I, I have heard about in your writer's rooms the amount, I mean, I know that they're serious and people talk about serious things, but I've also heard that there is play. There's lots that of play. You, I think you brought a drone or something yes. to one of the writer's rooms. Drones so. are fun. Lots of drones. I've had drones in several writer's rooms, different yeah. drones, different shows. <laughs> are you the guy who goes out and buys tech always, like the latest tech to play with? Uh, and yes and no. I mean, I'm not that bad, but I do like to keep things, mix things up in the writer's room I don't like it to get boring and just sort of normal or yeah. routine if you know I'd like to do screening movie screenings like to do outings try and keep the because uh, the energy flow of creativity needs to balance with other things it can't just be the pressure cooker of you know six seven people you know you know in a room yeah for 10 hours trying to f solve a problem you've got to you've got to be left-brained and right-brained at the same time just yeah. like create just like writing is the writing isn't a hundred percent it's the you know, tact it's technique but it's craft it's also inspiration and random and it's never something that you can sort of boil down to some kind of simple scientific principle or formula it's it's magic in a weird way. Yeah. Ooh, I want to talk about that magic, but I also feel like we skipped a little bit of a step there yeah. because we went from the the guy who wants to make movies oh, yeah. to a writer's room. So, yeah. I mean, there's a bit of a gap there in in between. Like, Yeah, uh, I had to basically learn how to be a writer. Yeah. Yeah. And when, so when you became a writer, were you like, I, I would prefer to tell these stories in, in a longer form, you know, with a narrative arc? Or like, tell me about that kind of foray into the world of television. Yeah, that television. was different. I started very much looking to do movies, and I started working in the movie side of Hollywood pretty much exclusively when I started, because I'd written a spec feature, and my first uh, hired job was for a film. So after that, what happens is you become kind of like this commodity, briefly, uh, where you're new and you're cheap. And you've had a little bit of momentum, so you get kind of passed around from producer to producer, who's trying, and they're all trying to develop uh, their projects. Right. And because I had now worked inside the Warner Brothers system, uh, and in those days there were a lot of producers with deals, I would basically get handed off to pr from producer to producer to help develop projects. So Jerry, uh, Jerry Weintraub Productions, Joel Silver Productions, companies that were known as w homes, you know, where they had their home at Warner Brothers. Warner, yeah. So I would basically get these calls where they were like, hey, you have to go and meet with some executive at Jerry Weintraub's company for this movie and help them, you know, see if it's something that would be a good fit. So I would get some material and I would go in and I would pitch my take on you know, a book or an article or a remake. And this happened like over the years with things like Ocean's Eleven yeah. and Speed Racer and all these movies that I never had any involvement with when they were when they got written. But I was there in that sort of early fertile period where they were trying to figure out how are we gonna make this yeah. movie. And um, uh, not the original Ocean's Eleven, the remake with Jewish yeah, I, I mean, was it the original from... <laughs> I'm old, but I'm not that old. Anyway, and so during that process, uh, it was only really, you know, movie, 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 and then I ended up writing The Art of War, um, which, uh, again, was part of that, you know, producer over here, 
has read this and wants to meet you on that, and then you get a job rewriting or writing a movie. And it yeah. was very much, I felt like uh, I was just a, I wasn't initiating anything really myself. Yeah. And that was, after a while, it was great because I was always working, but I wasn't really driving the process. I was just sort of waiting for the phone to ring or chasing or competing against other writers for the same project. Yeah. Well, open writing assignments, they're called. And that was nice because it was a living, and I was just happy to actually be making a living. I wasn't really aspiring to any lofty you know, ideals. But then I ended up getting an interesting job adapting a Harlan Coben book for uh, USA Network, mm. um, Gone for Good. And that was the, a long-form TV project. And I'd never done TV, so I got introduced to a whole new group of people, people who had read my movies but hadn't read, I had no TV to sample. So I went in and they were like, well, we think we need a movie writer for this type of long-form TV project because it was a closed-ended, limited. Yeah. And it was about six hours of of uh, six hours long. So I got that job and started adapting the book and then um, met a new group of people, basically, a new community, which was the TV community. And a lot of those people from USA in those days ended up sprinkled all over Hollywood and different jobs all over the place. And so after that, and I think I I did a good job and it became a good sample for me for other TV producers. So now my agents were sort of bifurcating my works, a little bit of movie work, a little bit of TV work, and that led to um, opportunities to write pilots. But it also coincided with me going, maybe I should start writing what I want to write instead of what everyone else wants me to write. And TV provided a unique opportunity. It was much easier for me as a writer to pitch a TV pilot that was my own original idea than to go into a movie studio and pitch an original movie. Yeah. And economically, there was a much more realistic chance I would get paid. (laughs) (laughs) Which is important. Well, in those days, and and, and it still happens, the networks uh, were buying, were overbuying pilot scripts and then they would sort of filter down to the ones they would shoot to, to become actual pilots and then series. So there was an actual, um, a way I could strategically just make sure that, okay, as long as I write a pilot every year, I'll make enough money to pay my bills and stay afloat. And then I can keep writing movies on the side, which may or may not pay off because that's a much more like a lottery ticket mentality. Whereas with pilots, there was a certain degree of certainty that, you know, I could, you know, so I started developing original ideas. Did it require you to change the way you think about story? Uh, no, no, not story. You still need the same elements, whether you're writing a movie or a TV show. The the fundamental character uh, sketch and the relationship between character and story and the evolution of character, it, it starts at the same place. And it's that concept that drives you as a writer to get excited every morning and wake up and go, oh, I want to keep writing this story because it's exciting me. And if you don't have that, you can't do it. Yeah, That's the same with movies and TV pilots, at least. What was different was with TV, you could go in with a much more open-ended concept. Yeah. So like a mo- the, the, the challenge with every movie is I can go in and go, I've got this great idea for a movie, and I pitch you this great idea, but I don't know how it's going to end. Yeah. And in a movie, that's fundamental because you have to know how what the second and third act are going to be and how it ends. With TV, you could go in and pitch a great concept and a setup have no idea how it's going to end and sell the show. Yeah. Because in their minds it was the it was the energy created by that concept and the setup that would drive the longevity of the show. So something like Continuum then uh, 
which I mean, we all let's just acknowledge it could have run for a lot more seasons. And I know you had more story. Yeah, we had for like that. a seven season rough, rough sketch. When yeah. We did the first year we but, sort of said, where could this go? Just so we know now before it's. So, but so before you pitched it, then yeah. did you have an idea of the kind of of the journey, no, like where you're gonna? Not as long as we did in this first season of the writing room. I think what I had was an es, es, an es, essential no understanding of here's an engine that's sort of self-perpetuating. Yeah. And that the uh, nature of the setup of the show would provide a lot of opportunities to tell stories and have conflict and drama. Yeah. But. And when I was pitching it in the early days, I hadn't figured out season to season at all. There was I really didn't really think about how even season one was going to end until there was a bite. And Showcase uh, came on board and said, okay, we want you to develop this. Uh, I'm so shocked right now. I don't know why I'm shocked about that. I think because, well, I mean, it I was I think now I don't. I wouldn't do that now. <laughs> I mean, I think at the time I was a little naive again about what was expected. But then again, Continuum was an interesting process because I didn't pitch it to sell it. Oh. Uh, it was essentially walked in by Pat Williams, who was the director and right. producer, because I was in LA working on two, uh, two shows for CBS that I thought were going to get made that didn't. Mm. And then Continuum was sort of the dark horse thing that I didn't expect to sell because it had fallen. I developed it, but not sold it in LA. And so Pat, when he called me and said, hey, I'm looking for projects to pitch to Shaw Media, do you have anything? And I said, yeah, actually I developed this one idea. I never got to pitch it because I got hired by CBS. So I'm not pitching anything this year. Here, you, why don't you try this? So for me, it was a little bit of an afterthought at the time, but I'd done the work on paper to yeah. sort of go, here's how it sets up, here are the characters, here's where I think it will go. But it was not developed into like a full season pitch. Now, if I was going into a room today to pitch a show, I would have the first 10 episodes somewhat you know, in mind so that I could say, here's how season one ends. Those days, though, I think because I wasn't going in to pitch it and I sort of handed a three-page document to Pat, I, th I forgot about it. And whatever Pat did obviously worked because yeah. Shaw became, <laughs> got interested. Now, at that point, there was no pilot script. So once we started talking about writing the pilot, then a lot of these ideas about, well, where's the show going to go, suddenly became part of the conversation. Okay. So I did definitely start to think about now I'm writing it how, where is this going to go? I need to know what the goalposts are for season one in general terms. Yeah. Um, and so when I wrote the pilot, I could at least then talk to the network about here's my plan. And then when they decided to go forward and make the show, I think that was integral to that decision was knowing that there was a, a one year at least season plan that was ver I could verbalize and they would understand, okay, we know where the show's going. We it makes it easier for us to say yes because you can say yes to a pilot, which is a very small investment. Yeah. Compared to the cost of saying yes to the series, which yeah. is you know tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. Wow, you just really blew my mind. I guess I just had this idea that you just woke up one day and you had Continuum fully formed well, no, in your continuum mind. Continuum did kind yeah. of hit me. I was stuck in traffic on Santa Monica Boulevard. Going it happens to a, a lot meeting. to you in the car, right? Eh? Uh, cars are good, especially in LA, because you end up sitting a lot and you don't want to just right. you know zone out. So I try to think. And I was stuck in traffic wishing I had a flying car because yeah. I was late. And then thinking about flying cars made me think about the future. And then thinking about the future made me think about technology and changes. And then I started thinking about what was in the news, which was uh, all about terrorism at the time. Right. And then I was thinking about how terrorism was, a, you know, like a tool of, of, uh, of 
the both good guys and bad guys depending on your perspective and I right. thought oh perspective driven drama time travel future uh, and then within about an hour I kind of had the the building blocks of a cop from the future is pursuing terrorists from the future back to the past but I was also thinking practically about a show that could be producible yeah in the present but had a lot a bigger idea than I could afford and time travel was a great big mythology that set in the present didn't cost anything more than a normal show yeah because it was an intellectual thing not a physical thing oh, so I just figured well if that's a that's at least something I can walk into a room with and say it's about the future and it's about time travel but it's not going to cost a lot of money yeah because it's grounded in the present but all of these notions and stakes are bigger because the future is represented. And I think that was also just me being, trying to be, a, that was probably the beginning of my producer phase. Yeah. I was trying to say, okay, how can I be smart about the money as well and make money part of the conversation? Because up, up to that point, I hadn't really thought about how to get things made or how much they cost because frankly, writing movies, you were sort of a cog in a wheel and you would write it, deliver it, and then you were done. Yeah. Uh, usually. And then a couple of movies I got to write and be part of this production and be on set. But for the most part, it was very much a, uh, you know, compartmentalized process. Yeah. And in TV, I saw that the writer was much more involved in the production. So. Yeah, so I guess that was the, that car ride then was kind of the birth of, of the showrunner that, that, that we know today. Well, Continuum definitely was my grad school because yeah. I had never written uh, weirdly, and this doesn't happen very often, when I was writing in L.A., I made the decision not to work as a staff writer um, in rooms. Because, Why? Well, because I was really busy doing movies while I was writing pilots, um. and I was worried that the room commitment was going to take away from my, my movie work. Yeah. And so I said, well, if I just stick to writing pilots and wait for the... and roll the dice every year, Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a... I think... I just was basically trying to skip a step. So the w I didn't actually work in a writer's room until Continuum, which was <laughs> my show and I was the showrunner. And so, so I learned a lot very quickly about how a room works. How do you how set, yeah, how do you set up a writer's room and run it when you've never been in you one? You get help. I, yeah. I, I hired a showrunner. I hired Jeff King, yeah. uh, who is a very smart and very experienced showrunner, who actually the network, I think, were very happy about too because they didn't want me to be the showrunner out of the gate either. I had no experience doing that. But I had production experience, which was good. Having come from the camera background, yeah. the set was very familiar and very comfortable for me. So things like the practical realities of what you write and translating that to being shot, I understood that innately because I had been uh, you know, 15 years at that point in the industry right. on sets. But the management of a showrunner with you know people management, creative management, and the what becomes essentially you're the conductor of a big orchestra, that was all new. So Jeff mm. came in for the first four episodes of Continuum and helped basically train me uh, to understand not just the creative responsibility I had, but the managerial responsibility. Yeah. And, you know, and it was a very solid team on Continuum. I mean, Pat being the producing director and having Reunion as the production company who have a ton of experience, I mean, we weren't. We were set up for success with the people who were there, and I got to benefit because I just learned whatever I could. But yeah. the great thing was on Continuum also was I was a partner, not an employee. Right. So I was. I got to see all the budgets. I got to see the inner workings of the show that I could then 
I could then take that knowledge and take it to the next show and the next show and the next show and build on that. Whereas in the States, if I'd been a showrunner, I would not have been afforded a lot of that involvement because I wouldn't have been a partner. I would have been an employee. Right. In Canada, you get to be, this, you know, as a showrunner in Canada, you're you're a much more invested in the in not only the ownership of the show, but the the way the show gets made. Yeah. Uh, because because you have to, you can't just go to a single source to finance in Canada. You have to bring in multiple parties. And so when you do that, the key, the core group of producers become very um, uh, aware of how the money is coming in and how it's going to be spent because the budgets are very limited. There's yeah. no bank. Uh, there's no studio that you can just say, hey, we we ran out of money. We need more. It doesn't exist. You're basically creating a business model, a pop-up restaurant, like if you will, and you've been given a fixed amount. And you can't go over that because you can't go back to – because there's so many different sources. No one is going to pay extra if the others aren't all, and that's very unusual. Yeah. So we were – we became – you know, well, at least I became uh, a producer, I think, at that point where I was like, okay, I have to manage the creative with the money at the same time. Yeah. And I have to solve all my problems, my money problems with writing. I can't, I can't just like put it on someone else to figure it out. Yeah. I can't say, well, I want to write, I want to shoot the scene and you have to figure out how to get the money. That person was me. Yeah. (laughs) So I was like, well, I don't know where to get more money. So I'm just going to write, rewrite the scene so that we can afford it. So it's not we're going to fix it in post. No. It's we're fixing no, we, it in writing. You fix it in prep. Actually, <laughs> you fix it in prep is the only way to do the job right. And yeah. and any success I've had as a producer has been because of that mantra, which is fix it in prep. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I had a, you have to have a very good team. I had Holly Redford as the line producer on Continuum, who would come into my office and we would sit down and creatively go through the challenges of the budget. So that we could speak in terms of you know creativity and the script, not just oh this is how much this uh, this rig is going to cost. It was like can we tell the story in another way that we can do it uh, at a lower price and not uh, not take out the the what's good about the scene, what's making the scene interesting. You know? Yeah. And so that was really good for me because that's all those lessons. And for four seasons, uh, I got to take. Uh, with me from Continuum and apply them to Van Helsing and to Ghost Wars and now to Warrior Nun and become more independent uh, as a as a writing producer and a, sh- and a writing director so that I didn't have to, you know, run the risk of partnering necessarily with someone who was not looking out for the show or I could actually cover those things now. Yeah. Um, I, I want to just go back to what it means to be a showrunner mm-hmm. is it the kind of thing because what you've just described it's like you it's like graduating from one role to the yeah. other and expanding so is it the kind of thing where you, that's what you have to do and kind of evolve into it or do you go into the industry with your like if your mindset on like I want to be a showrunner like which, well, you which have is to more, want it I mean yeah. I think it's definitely more than you bargain for because people are going to expect of you something that has nothing to do with how good a writer you are mm. It's, they're totally separate skill sets. Yeah. And a lot of writers I know who are excellent writers have no desire to be a showrunner because they're being asked to do things that are not, in their minds, um, fun, <laughs> interesting, or in any way uh, um, their skill set or the, or their comfort zone. Yeah. So you have to have a you have to have a sort of an understanding about yourself and go, hey, do I want to be? Am I okay if I stop writing today and I'm just like a manager, people person, talking about amortizing budget costs and you know dealing with um, 
you know, budget overruns in five different departments. Yeah. Is that, am I comfortable with that? Because I'm going to be doing that. And am I comfortable dealing with agents, make, helping make actor deals, making, uh, organizing post-production with the post-supervisor, making uh, creative decisions that have nothing to do with what's on the printed page, but like getting actors to come out of their trailer or telling a director that they have to redo a scene because they didn't do it right. I mean, all of those things have nothing to do with being a good writer yeah. or being or the training you get as a writer. So you have to know yourself a little bit and say, is this the kind of thing I actually want to spend a lot of hours doing? And, you know, it takes you out of the game because, I mean, I'll give you an example on Warrior Nun. We started the writing room last fall, 24 weeks of writing, then um, shooting for basically uh, from March through to July. And then I'm in post now until January. So as a writer, I could be writing five different projects this year, uh, but I'm only working on one. Yeah. So, but that, you are really working on. Yeah, one. but I have to. But I'm on working on every level, and I'm not yeah. being paid by the hour. It's like a one lump sum that it's like you spread it out, and it works out to you know. I'm basically making you know. I think what a cop make. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's you have to love the you have to love getting into it, but also not getting into it too much that you're overprotective. Yeah. So you have to basically de- de- delegate and you have to have good people. I think the thing I'm good at is finding really smart, talented people who make me look good. Yeah. Because I, <laughs> I don't think I can do all these jobs and I don't want to do all these jobs, but someone has to sort of say, here's what we want. Yeah. Here's the direction we're going. And that person ends up being the showrunner. So yeah. it's it's much more like, I don't know, I, don't, I tr- keep trying to look for a good analogy Conductor's good, but like conductor's it's conductor's good, but the conductors usually aren't writing the music. Yeah, and you do have this, you do have this attachment to your sh- as a showrunner who creates shows, because there are showrunners who don't create the show; they come in and they manage the show. And there are writer creators who don't showrun and have yeah. to work with another person whose job it is to execute that show. And sometimes they don't get along because the vision of the creator isn't the vision of the showrunner. Yeah, I'm lucky that I tend to get to show run the shows I create but I've handed over shows like Bad Blood yeah. uh, to other showrunners and been very happy with that process and it's I would so do that good, again it's so good Simon oh. Bad Blood is so good well that's because Mike Conovis <laughs> is so good uh, Michael Conovis is the star of that show not me well, you're still involved your name's yeah, still no, there it was, came it from was, your brain it helped, I helped get it up and running <laughs> yeah. um, and off the ground for sure but when it comes to the really hard work of making a show great I think you do have to credit not just the person who writes the episode and directs but also the showrunner on the ground yeah in the rain getting wet getting yelled at in the mud yeah <laughs> fingers being pointed at the ne- getting fire replaced you know all that that's uh that's you have to well, you're having a flashback right now or something eh? no no i'm i'm uh, i'm not at all <laughs> i'm fine <laughs> Do you need to break? take a break? We can take a break. I was going to no, wait a little bit, no, but... That's good. So you do, that part of showrunning is, and you have to lo- love the idea that, okay, I'm going to see this thing through from concept, early early concept, to literally the day before it gets released, yeah. with the marketing and the promotion. And you have to be, and you have to want to be involved with that and yeah. deal with all of that. I mean, the great thing about writing is you don't have to deal with people usually. And the problem with showrunning is you're constantly <laughs> dealing with people. And yeah. so those two things couldn't be further apart. Yeah. 
And and then what about as um oh there's so much I want to talk to you also, about you got to come back but also I've directing loved- <laughs> direct I love directing so showrunning allows me to direct because no one will hire me as a director <laughs> technically uh, so every time I get to be a showrunner I get excited yeah. about the idea that I'm going to get to direct because directing for me is like one of the most fun things I can do yeah. so I I whenever I'm complaining about the showrunning problems or the showrunning issues or what showrunning I always think, well, at least I get to direct and yeah. do that. So uh, for me, that's sort of my little present to myself. Yeah. Um, in the middle of it all, in the middle of the storm, I can usually say, okay, well, that was awesome. But, you know, <laughs> and I got to direct the two biggest episodes of Warrior Nun, which was, you know. In Spain. In Spain, yeah. Yeah, okay. I want to put a pin in Warrior Nun for a minute because I want to talk about like the kind, like what is a Simon Barry story? Oh, that's you a good know, question. Because I, I mean, I look at, I look at the, your oeuvre of, of work and they seem so vastly different yeah, and yet they that. hit me on all different kinds I'm of levels. I'm trying to do levels. something different every time. I don't want to do another, you know, if you've done a time travel show, you want to go do a gangster show. If you've done the gangster show, you want to do the ghost story. If you've done the ghost story, you want to do the the fighting nuns. and uh, It's a deliberate attempt to keep fresh, to mm. keep interested, uh, to not retread the same ground. I think the dangerous part of this job going forward is to ever is to make it ever routine or normal. Yeah. If you're not sort of scaring yourself with the content or the execution a little bit, then you I think it's very easy to start phoning it in and show run from a desk yeah. uh, in LA and just yell at people for not doing everything right. Um, I have no interest in doing that really. Um, and I'd rather not, if I'm gonna produce something and step away, I'm, as long as I get to handpick and be involved with who's going to do it, like on Bad Blood, it's very rewarding because mm. you go, oh, I was right about that person and they did an amazing job and the show's good and my name's on it, so that's nice. Whereas if I'm going to take the same basic idea and just redo it in another way, that's less interesting and I'd rather not, basically, just for my own bullshit reasons. Of yeah boredom yeah so yeah if I can keep moving the the needle a little bit on on stories worlds and yeah typically genre is my favorite space I like high concept genre shows as a viewer but I also like you know the crown and you know that's not really high concept at all um, but the the uh, the idea that I can uh, I think it's also part of the sales process. A lot of the shows I've I've made, I've sold. Yeah. I've been the one in the room going, here's the concept, you want to make this. And sometimes that DNA of what makes a great sale is sort of these unrelated things that go together in the makeup of the show. Right. So every show that I've done in the genre space has probably been easier to sell because of that notion of like, here's two crazy ideas that when you slam them together, it's a Reese's peanut butter cup, you know, yeah. and they go, oh my God, I've never seen peanut butter and chocolate before. Let's do that. And that sometimes is more convenient and popular in the genre space. Yeah. Although I would love, I mean, I watch Mindhunter right now and I'm like, oh my God, <sighs> I wish I was as good a writer and, uh, and a filmmaker to do that show. Uh, but you need to be inspired by better filmmakers and better writers. And, you know, and one day, hopefully you know, on the 10th show, I'll, do something as good as Mindhunter <laughs> or The Crown. 
I, I think the, um, of all the all the work that you've been involved in, Ghost Wars is is I think so underrated and also so bonkers. Like I bonkers, use that word right. with other because yeah. every episode felt so different. Yeah. There was literally one episode where I had the I I almost threw up. Awesome. You know, <laughs> Dennis will be very happy about that. But what was the like for what goes on in a writer's room for a show like that? Like how does yeah. that how the heck does that kind of like Well Ghost Wars was very unusual in that we were I was handed essentially the concept of yeah. Ghost Wars in a way was uh, during Van Helsing. The reason I left Van Helsing was not because I didn't want to stay in Van Helsing. It was that Sci-Fi had said, "Oh, because I was essentially working with Neil LeBute on season one of Van of Van Helsing to help him get up to speed as a showrunner, something he hadn't done but was very adept at." I was I was basically making myself redundant on the show. So Sci-Fi would very nicely said to me, well, we know you probably don't need to come back season two because Neil's got the show in hand. We have a, a concept that we'd like to run by you. So the fact that it came together the way it did, and when they pitched me this idea of a haunted town and a, and and then the bare bones part of it, uh, I was like, well, horror. Uh, okay, I haven't done horror. Exciting. But who do I know who loves horror more than me? Ah, Dennis Heaton. Dennis Heaton, yeah. Um, I think I should <laughs> bring him out as a partner. So that, for me, sort of set in motion uh, because I wasn't sitting around coming up with the concept of a haunted town. We had to come up with everything else, like mm-hmm. the people and the circumstances and the mythology. But the idea, the, the very basic premise, uh, because that wasn't part of the, the process, I was like, oh, okay, well, what um, what is this going to be? Because I wasn't, there wasn't that nugget of inspiration. So bringing Dennis on certainly helped focus yeah. what the show's attitude was going to be and how we were going to basically separate ourselves from everything else that was typical. Yeah. The problem was on Ghost Wars, and you're right, it is, it's kind of this hidden bonkers gem, is that when we were making it, that same person from sci-fi got hired away to Netflix. Oh. And um, and in to punish them, sci-fi just didn't release Ghost Wars to the media yeah. or anything. And so we essentially didn't release. Yeah. We were on the air, but no one knew because no um, media got preview copies. There were no reviews. Yeah. And so it's sort of just, and I don't think sci-fi was really keen on promoting it because this executive in particular had sort of bailed on the show in their yeah. mind and moved to a different network. And yet it had Meatloaf and no, it had Meatloaf Vincent D'Onofrio and, D'Onofrio and Kim great. Coates and some no, very strong the, Vancouver talent. The experience <laughs> of it was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and we laughed and laughed and laughed. And we knew we were making something that was different and not for everyone, but that yeah. was what made it like, fun because we were trying to make it a bit bonkers and we were going into this uh, tonal space that was, you know, much more like American Werewolf in London. Um, and, you know, and Dennis is built on that with the order. He's, Absolutely. He's done it the right way because, you know, I think he, he had the support. Um, the uh, But, the you know, at the end of the day, and I tell a lot of aspiring showrunners and writers this, it's like what I walk around with in my heart is the experience of making it, not the finished product. Yeah. Uh, I don't really, um, after post-production, I don't watch really any of the shows ever again because I've watched them a hundred times in post (laughs) and built them, you know, with the editors and with sound and with VFX and with, uh, you know, color grading and every, every little piece music and mixes. It's, you end up seeing it so often you've lost, you lose 
the ability to just watch it as a viewer. Yeah. Um, so all you have really is the memories of making it and being in the room and laughing and you know being on set and being uh, through the process. So it's uh, for me it has this very special place regardless of what the show does yeah. in the marketplace. But what it's always fun. I, I, to this day, there's usually a message every week from someone who's discovered it on Netflix. Yeah. And I still goes. recommend it all the time. I'm like, listen, if you want, it's a great journey. Should have gone for longer, but it's a great one season contained journey. So, you know, and then I've had people be like, what the hell? It's a, every episode. I don't like. Is it a yeah. horror? Is it no, a we comedy? Knew, go, is it a ghost thing? Day one the writing room. Yeah. Dennis and I sort of addressed the writers' room. We said we're going to make a show that a lot of people will love, but a lot of people are going to hate. Yeah. And that we should be excited about that. Yeah. Because we don't want to just make the middle of the road version of the show, which we'll all just want to shoot ourselves. If yeah. We have to get you know if this goes for five years and and it's just boring and we're looking at it ourselves going we all sold out. Um, it'll be the worst thing ever. So I'm glad that it's divisive. I'm glad that people hate it. I mean, I, I think I, when you get the hate mail, it's almost as good as the love mail, love yeah. letter, because you realize, oh, we really did trigger. That's awesome. It was very <laughs> triggering. But it, for me, in the most delightful way, and I got to see you know, Sharon Taylor do some incredible work that we hadn't had the chance for her to, to see her do before. And now, of course, she's gone on to Bad Blood, and she's gone on to Jan, and yeah. you know, she's on fire right now. So it's, it's, it's just, it was exciting. I love it. We're going to take a break. And uh, when we get back, we're going to talk about Simon's latest project, Warrior Nun. Um, Or we're going to try to get Simon to talk about it. We're going to shake the tree. We're going to see what falls. How's that for a cliffhanger? Let's take a break. Some people claim that Vancouver is a no-fun city, but anyone who says this has clearly not attended Liquid Amber Tattoo and Art Collective's monthly art socials, because these events are crazy fun and bring artists and art lovers together in one gorgeous space. Liquid Amber Tattoo is located in a stunning three-story brick building in historic Gastown. Since 2001, Liquid Amber's artists have been providing custom and cosmetic tattoos to satisfied Vancouverites and out-of-towners. The studio is health board approved, it's spotless, and the artists are consummate professionals. And there is always stellar artwork by local artists on the walls. Which brings us to Liquid Amber Tattoo and Art Collective's signature event, The Art Social. On the last Friday of every month, Liquid Amber closes up early and the studio becomes an after-hours hive of creative energy. A vibrant, pulsating event space where artists show and sell their creations to art lovers and everyone is sipping wine and beer and having one hell of a good time. And right now, Liquid Amber Tattoo is on the lookout for art that's been created by artists who work in the film industry or that's been inspired by the film industry in some way. Is that you? Learn how you can submit your work to the 2020 Showcase and be part of future art socials on the Liquid Amber website. Liquid Amber Tattoo and Art Collective is located at 62 Powell Street in Vancouver. For more information about the studio and the monthly art socials and to submit to the 2020 Film Art Showcase, visit liquidambertattoo.com. That's liquidambertattoo.com. So... Warrior Nun is coming. Yes. Uh, it's based on a comic book series? Graphic novel, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's called American Manga. It's uh, basically an American author named Ben Dunn who did his comic book in the manga style. Yeah. Uh, Warrior Nun. So it's there's over 115 issues. It's It goes back to the 90s, I believe. Um, and it's a very kind of balls out, like, 
brash, almost heavy metal like uh, graphic nice. novel. Yeah. But we couldn't make that show. No. Because <laughs> it's Netflix and it's, you know, for a different audience. So yep. we sort of took the inspiration of the Warrior Nun mythology and a few of their uh, choice um, uh, sketches, character sketches, and yeah. we sort of reinvented it into a more kind of contemporary, um, grounded version of the show. Because the show that Ben, the, the, the graphic novel that Ben created, is a little bit out of this universe. It yeah. sort of lives in a universe that just technically and from a production point of view would be too much and thematically was a bit in your face for yeah. what Netflix was looking for. And this is, um, it's a female-centric project? Yeah, it's yeah. totally, it's basically all female uh, leads and with some sprinkling of male supporting parts. So yeah. it's a good reversal on the, model, the typical model. Um, it's, a really, it's really a show about sisterhood. Um, mm. I love is that. what it's about. It's about a girl who kind of comes into a group that is set up and has their way, and she is the disruptor, and she changes their uh, point of view and their perspective because she is so different and so um, uh, independent yeah. in a way. And so she is. That's the fun part of the show. Is it's really, it's a female. Vatican, is your typical female Vatican superhero show? Your typical one, yeah. yeah. So a lot of, uh, is there a lot of uh, religious um, iconography in this show? Well, the show is set squarely in the world of religion, but not, but it's not a religious show per yeah. se. So what we did is we used the mythology of the Catholic Church and the, infra the familiar infrastructures but we don't get into dogma. Mm -hmm. We kind of use, uh, you know, heaven and hell and God and the devil, and we use um, big, sweeping themes of religion. But we don't get into kind of the differences between, you know, different versions of Christianity yeah. or anything like that. It's really more about the structures. Yeah. And the women obviously are not just fighting good and evil; they're also fighting the patriarchy. Oh, wow. So This is going to keep me up at night, this show. I can well, feel it already. <laughs> you get to binge it because it's on Netflix. You can watch yes! all 10 episodes at once. Uh, but yeah, so we used we used the world, which is really why we shot it in Spain as well, was to have the the history, the, the, the thousand, thousand, two thousand years of, of mythology alive in the show so that it doesn't feel new. It's yeah. a new show. It's set in the present, but it's haunted by the past constantly. Yeah. And so... It, that ta that texture is very important to the show, but it's not a show about, you're not going to come out of it believing more or less in anything. Yeah. Did you work with a, a Spanish production company at all? Or like, 100%. Yeah, because um, I, I, can, I can imagine the challenges. I mean, there are challenges in going to Langley to film, yeah. like in a, you know, going no, to Spain. We like. embraced it. I mean, another, this is through Greg Middleton, of course, be, when we made the decision. Who knew a thing or two about filming in Europe? Shoot in Spain. <laughs> when we said to him, when I mentioned to him that we were going to shoot in Spain, he said, well, you have to hire this company, Fresco Film and Peter Welter Solar, because they're the best. Yeah. And um, I was like, yeah, but we're not Game of Thrones. He goes, don't worry about it. It's like, this is, it. just do it. Um, and so the great thing about this was when now I was presented with, you know, even though the production company is based in Vancouver, RDF, and Stephen Hedges is my producing partner, uh, and Zach uh, Tucker Ganges is our line, or our, our, our on, the, on, the, on the set producer, we really were like, well, let's, let's make the show in Spain with as many Spanish uh, creatives as we can because let's embrace where we are and how we're going to do it. Yeah. And so I, for the first time, I basically 
did a show with literally nobody I've ever worked with before, and that includes the writing room. Um, wow. So other than Zach, who was on in Spain with me uh, for all the production stuff, uh, and was there for prep and, and post, everyone else was Spanish, number one, everyone, and except for one of our DPs is from New York. Um, it was great. So, but and our cast, it, our cast is international. Was it terrifying though going in? Because you know, I mean, especially you've built a community around you. You have shorthand with a lot of creatives. Yeah. Going into that, like, t- tell me about like the well, it's not terrifying. way to communicate it's, with people. Yeah, you you feel like okay, I have to be really good at selecting the people I'm going to work with. I mean, the great thing was having Greg suggest Peter and Fresco was a big shortcut in terms of like, well, Greg's pretty. Yeah, Greg and I see uh, the world very similarly, and we have the same. Uh, bar yeah. standard and so if Greg thinks this person is okay there's a fucking 100% chance I am too yeah. so usually that lines up and Peter of course uh, to a T was that person that Greg had said he would be and therefore everything and everyone that Peter presented to me from production designer to costumes to everyone was exactly what you would expect Yeah. and so this, so once you have that core group around you that you look at and you go, all these people are better at their jobs and smarter than me than I could ever. I mean, this is great. You basically try not to say too much to screw it up at that Mm. point. And you let everyone be as good as they are. So what we had in Spain out of the gate was essentially a world-class team of creatives who all, all I could do was essentially get in their way if I tried to micromanage them. So what I did is I explained as best as I could what the vision of the show was, provided scripts as early as possible, and tried to be the person who answered questions and solved problems, but let them do what they're good at. And that was the best part of it, was really letting the Spanish creative team and production team do their thing and they're world class. So. Yeah. Is the, um, we talked a bit how you are inspired by by what's going on in the in the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're creating in a room with, in, in a different place or with people you haven't worked with before, like, how, is it a different kind of zeitgeist? Are you pulling a, uh, like yeah. from different things? So tell me about like, like in what ways is the, is the zeitgeist represented in Warrior Nun? Well, you encourage everyone in the, especially in the writing process to not be just towing the line yeah. uh, and not just feeding into my version of things. So I, I try to keep it, especially in the beginning few weeks, it's a very it's democratic, it's very open. You can go way off uh, base if you want. You can throw crazy ideas in. Just get the conversation in a way. And also the makeup of the room has to be reflective of different points of view. Yeah. Different experiences, different lives led. So we had a very, I would say, balanced room. It was, you know, 70, 30, I think it was 60, 40 female to male. Mm-hmm. And we had people from, from you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, we had people with varying experience. Some were super experienced, like Amy Berg, who'd come off of Counterpart. Yeah. And uh, then we had Sheila Wilson, who had never been on a show before. It was yeah. literally coming out of AFI. Uh, and so all those different perspectives adds to the fact that you're not going to make this homogenous, uh, single-minded version of anything. Yeah. So all the characters develop a voice. All of the stories can now shift as we collectively figure out what the stories are. And so you lose track of all the components and just you all you do then is start looking at it and evaluating it and going, is this 
good? Is this smart? Is this challenging? Is this surprising? Are you the one asking those questions? Yeah, that's like, my job in yeah. the room. My job basically is to, I'm trying to be like, um, not just, uh, I want to enable all this conversation, but I also don't want it to go so off out of uh, off the tracks that we stop losing focus. Yeah. So it's a bit of, you know, it's it's like organizing a dinner party in real time over four months, you know, <laughs> live in, in, <laughs> constantly. So it's like the, the, as a dinner party can sort of shift from conversation to conversation to anecdote to anecdote. Yeah. So does the writer's room at the beginning of the process. And so you just need someone to sort of you go, you know, oh, let's talk about this or let's not talk about that and let's focus on this part of that conversation. Yeah. So, but I don't have to do that very often with smart people. It's usually when there's, you know, if Dennis Heaton's in the room, I have to do it a lot. Yeah, I bet. Because Dennis bet. just wants to talk about, you know, skulls and tr- creatures and, uh, you know, places he's buried bodies. Yeah, and, yeah. and sometimes that distracts from the storytelling. But, I, I could see how that could but happen. But every now and then an idea will come out of <laughs> So you use it. That's why he's good and horrible. Um, I, I want to hear more about about Spain and shooting in Spain. Like, yeah. tell me about some of the locations where you where well, you filmed. We shot all over Andalusia, which is the southern province of Spain, stretches from basically Gibraltar all the way up to um, Granada, and in between that is Malaga, Marbella, Seville, Cordoba, um, and. A lot of it's coastal, but there's a great there's some great towns inland, and yeah. so our main off production office and our main hub was in Malaga, which is like where the international airport is in that region, yeah. where you can sort of um, connect to a lot of places. Uh, so it was a great central point for us. And then, but we shot in um, a lot of different places. We shot in a town called Antequera, which is uh, 45 minutes north of Malaga, which is where our main set was. And we shot in Seville, in uh, Cordoba, in um, like st- uh, were, were these exter- exteriors? Were you in Everything. churches? Interiors, yeah, exteriors. Were there ch- like you were allowed to film in churches? Yeah, we and stuff? we negotiated some churches. So Spain, one of the advantages of shooting a show that's based around religion in Spain is Spain has more desacralized shirt churches, I think, than anywhere oh, else in Europe. Right. Okay. So there's, you know, there's like, it feels like you go to these small towns and there's a church for every five people. Yeah. Because there's, at every corner there's a church. Um, I was just in Italy this summer, literally the same thing. Is a lot yeah. of them have been, they essentially <laughs> are no longer in use. And yeah. what happens most of the time is the town hall will take over that space from the church and then they can use it as a community center. They can do concerts, they can do classes, they can use that as a public space, Yeah. essentially. And so we found, uh, in Antiquaire at least, a really old, like a 12th century, 11th century church that has been turned over to the city. So instead of dealing with the diocese, we still had to deal with the diocese because it's their building, yeah. but it wasn't an active church that had services. So we could essentially rent it the same way we would be renting a community center as opposed right. to renting it the way we would a church, which is a working building. Yeah. And the scrutiny, I guess you could say politically, would be not as extreme. But that said, we also rented the main cathedral in Malaga, which is an active cathedral, and we had no problems dealing with the diocese in that sense. So we had, I mean, but we had great people. I mean, we had, um, we had, uh, you know, Tate, uh, our location manager, he was the location manager on Thrones. Mm-hmm. So from a point of view of optics, when Tate comes into your office and you look him up, you realize here's someone who's going to be very respectful, who's worked with the best in the world, who's brought also 
attention to some of these locations in Spain that has been beneficial for the town, for yeah. the community as a shooting location. So my hope is that after Warrior Nun comes out, the places we filmed will benefit from that same, I mean, we probably will never be on the same scale as Warrior of, Go of Game of Thrones, but you know, the idea that some of that halo effect, yeah. Um, uh, and pun intended, by the way, on halo effect. Oh God! Uh, <laughs> is uh, is translated to the communities that supported us for shooting, so that they get a spike in tourism and things of that nature. But no, I mean, it was it was a dream come true for someone who's shot everything in Vancouver yeah. and has, in a sense, seen it all. Yeah. To go to a country where it was all new and everything was different, and you know, you didn't have to build a lot because the natural beauty is there and. It was great. I mean, it was like the fantasy you always have as a filmmaker. It's like, I'm going to go somewhere exotic and live there and make a show. And you get to do that. And, and you like, did oh, that. Oh, yeah. wow, that's great. That's really lucky. I feel blessed. Yeah. Hashtag blessed. Yes. Yeah. Um, do you have... What, like I mean, you described like you know a dreams come true and uh, and you know living living the fantasy. But like, would you consider that like a what the fuck? This is actually my life moments. Like you know, yeah. like when do you get those? You do that. I mean, I do that all the time. I still can't believe I'm lucky enough to do this for a living. So yeah. And as some as a kid who always wanted to do it, it's never goes away. Um, but there's always the next thing. I mean, I really want to do a show uh, with Jackie. You know, yes, that's the next thing for me. Is like how when we say it's just um, let's introduce. So Jack, we're talking Jackie Gould. Yeah, you know, the, the director, superstar director, writer. writer. Um, she so the, the for us we live these split lives right now. Um, she's super talented. I'm in awe of what she does as a writer and yeah. as a director. She's totally different from me. I'm totally different from her, but. To find a way to work together would be yeah. great, and I think we'd make each other better. So trying, and also finding a show that we make together, not just she hires me or I hire her, like something that we, you actually creatively yeah, sit down and, and sit down and, and figure develop. out a way to do that together. So that's definitely another thing I'm looking forward to doing. Um, uh, We'd love to see what you do, do that together soon. You know, that'd be the next thing. Then yeah, because she's getting do, busy. Yeah, she's busy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and then also to do a feature film. I've always wanted to do a feature, and I now I have at least. You know the ability to I think not fuck it up yeah um, <laughs> as much as I would have 10 15 years ago and what that uh, guy who hired the the that universal screening room and yeah. sh and showed a short film yeah, yeah like that guy, that guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a long way around but uh, hopefully I'll get back there yeah and um, and then also I'd like to um, you know I'd like to look investigate new media storytelling like yeah. virtual reality and video game storytelling and and also write a book you know all these things are on the to-do list writing a book yeah. that's writing so you consider yourself a writer now then not until i write a book <laughs> no i'm a film designer or a tv show designer when i write i'm not i don't think of myself as a writer i'm like oh my god i gotta get this done and that's not really what you think. When you think of writing, you think of, oh, I'm going to go to a cabin in the woods. and Oh, yeah, and very romantic and but snow I'm, falling. When I'm writing, I'm like, it's like homework. Yeah. It's like, oh, this person is waiting for this, and i got to finish it. And that's not the same headspace. I yeah, think, I think, though, writing a book feels like that. Maybe, maybe. if you have, like, a quill pen or something. and Yeah, no, I'm not going to do it that way. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, that's just my, and that's just fear. That's me thinking I'm not good enough to write a, a book because that's real writing. Mm. And I've skated by on film and TV writing, which is hard, 
and I find it incredibly difficult. But the I guess the idea that the you're not judged on the script as much as the finished product. Yeah. Whereas with a book, that's all you have is the words, and that's probably much more scary. <laughs> I love how how much fear has played into your it's, your fear is the career thing that makes you go. I mean, yeah. I th- I did it on Warrior Nun. Even I was like, how am I going to scare myself in a way that's going to be good for the show? Yeah. Because if you don't, if you aren't a little scared, you're not really pushing the same way uh, that makes I think a show pop. Yeah. Well, you know, considering your work keeps me up at night a lot, I'm glad to know that you are yourself living in a state of terror yes. as well. It's, it's, it's <laughs> pleasant terror, I will say. It's yes. not stressful terror. I mean, it's, sometimes it's stressful, but when you're surrounded by people you love working with and that make you laugh, you it makes everything better. But yeah. it doesn't take away the the fear of failure. I think that's what you just go, oh, I just don't want this to suck, please. Is that what failure is? Like, oh, so, so, yeah, I'm sorry, I think failure is something I would watch and go, oh, this is terrible. Yeah. Like, oh, this is awful. And I think, you know, you're always the toughest critic in the sense that I always thought, I just don't want to work on something I wouldn't want to watch yeah. or feel like, oh, this has some value and it's from an entertainment point of view. And it's always hard the more you're working on it to distance yourself enough to know is it good or not? And that is also scary because I know now after making four or five shows, I have no idea if it's good or bad now because you're so ensconced and you're so committed that you lose all that objectivity and you yeah. really do rely on others to tell you, hey, you need to fix this. Or so yeah. I'm, I'm, I think it gets scarier when you realize that can happen. I mean, yeah. I think it's every show, it's so funny how you think some show will do this and some show will do that or the response, and it's never what you expect. Um, so I have no I have no idea. I'm just ready for uh, anything, I guess. Is yeah, well, I'm ready to watch whatever it is well, that you put out. Well, will be now. out next year, yeah. in the sp- late winter, early spring, I hope. Yeah. March <laughs> or April uh, on Netflix and all over the world. And uh, I think... At number one, I'll, it'll be totally different from mm-hmm. anything else I've done before. And number two, it will keep you up at night because it'll be so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> Not because it's going to give you nightmares. Okay. Although there are some nightmare-inducing scenes, for sure. Well, I will be probably live-tweeting my my binge-watch at that time. Simon Davis-Berry, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Sabrina. Where can our listeners find you on the social media? Um, Simon Davis Barry at Twitter. Mm-hmm. Simon Davis Barry on Instagram. All right, and you you tweet a lot of photos from location. Which yeah, is- I try not to do spoilers, and I'm not. I think I'm bound by certain NDAs to not do that. But I do try to sort of show. And when the show comes out, I'll be able to sh- uh, share a lot more nice. behind the scenes of our ca- amazing cast, of the amazing locations, um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And the people we we made the show with, like the the team behind it, just awesome. Yeah. Food was good in Spain, eh? Oh, my God. <laughs> Best I, meal? Best meal in Spain? There's, I mean, I did get a chance to go to um, a restaurant called Tickets in Barcelona. Barcelona, uh, Which Tickets is one of the brothers who did Ibuli back in the early 2000s, which was like the top restaurant in the world for about five years. So I got to go to that restaurant, and that was pretty special because they have still have items from the Ibuli menu oh. at Tickets that you can try some of the things that uh, – the world was, you know, doing backflips, back backflips over in the de- back in the day, and I never got to go when it was a bully. So that was kind of fun. I mean, every, the great thing about Spain is you can walk into any establishment, 
whether it's in the sketchiest part of town or in a fancy place and get awesome food and uh, usually for a very reasonable price. Yeah. The idea that the there's there's less of this uh, disparity between high and low in Spain yeah. for food and for drink. Everyone, I think it's like a basic human right in Spain. You everyone should have everybody access should have access to, to inexpensive good <laughs> wine and amazing food. Yeah. and that is definitely the hallmark of the way they live. I mean, yeah. everyone's out having fun and drinking. And Enjoying eating. their life. I Enjoying think the life, yeah. best sangria I've ever had in my life was in Barcelona and it was made with like the most beautiful sparkling cava. Like it was like what I imagine unicorn tears would taste like. <laughs> And it was at this tapas restaurant where the theme was like British imperialism. It was so weird, but so amazing. All right. So I'm going to go eat lunch now, see if I can find something in Kitsilano that's the same as what we've just been talking about. Please, listeners, like and subscribe. Leave us a review. You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVR Screen Scene. The YVR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by myself, Sabrina Furminger, and it's edited by Simon Furminger. Special thanks to Tyson Braddock and Paul Furminger for technical support. We are a family business here. YVR Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cat!